Well, uh, hello everyone. Um, uh, my name is uh, Mike. I'm here with uh, David and Daniel. And we decided to have a conversation uh, regarding the creation evolution debate, but to come at it from somewhat of a different angle. Um, so I'm gonna share a picture here that I posted in a, in a theology discussion group, and that's how we connected ourselves. So uh, I, it's, it, you guys can see it pretty well, right? The picture? Yeah. The graphic. Okay, so basically I put this picture up where I said that most of the debates surrounding evolution are divided in half. And on the left side, you have people like creationists, scientific creationists, intelligent designers. On the right side, you have theistic evolutionists, evolutionary creationists, or just atheistic, naturalistic evolutionists and so on. But I said that I think that there's some kind of middle space that hasn't really been explored. <clears throat> so, um, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how we connected just to have a conversation about that and uh, um, have a discussion about whether we're kind of looking at this thing properly, the, the way the debate has been taking place over the past few years. So uh, I think we should start maybe by introducing ourselves a little bit. Um, um, one thing we're doing is we haven't scripted this conversation. This is pretty much our first conversation. So uh, we're just gonna go ahead and if people wanna follow along, they could just feel like if they're participating right here in, in, in the middle and learning along with us. So let's take some time and introduce each other, introduce ourselves and then um, we'll go from there. So I don't know, uh, Daniel, do you wanna start? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Dan Hack, I'm a, a vineyard pastor uh, and I do homeless ministry and spiritual direction and kids and youth ministry. And I'm uh, also the author of uh, According to Folly, which uh, a fair amount of the book um, wrestles with these kinds of questions about the relationship between um, evolution and creation and, and those debates. Yeah. And I, uh, when he mentioned that he was the author of that book, I, I bought the book and read it overnight. And uh, it was an awesome book. So I recommend it to anybody listening. Okay, David, what, uh, what can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm David. I am actually just a seminary student. I go to one of the SBC seminaries, uh, Southeastern, and <clears throat> am just about to finish up a dual enrollment master's program. So, Awesome. Yeah. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, Mike. Um, I'm a pastor as well. I, I'm actually unemployed at the moment because of the pandemic, but hopefully uh, those things will change soon. But in the meantime, I was, I'm also finishing up a doctoral program and um, I'm working on some things that are related to the topic here, evolution, um, creation, and along with a lot of other hermeneutical issues and things like that. So this is right on my alley as far as interest. So I think uh, um, it's gonna be a beneficial discussion no matter which way it goes. So before we actually turned on the recording while we were waiting for everything to get set up, I mentioned that in my opinion, some of the, the uh, concerns I have with the evolution debate is that, uh, or I should say, I personally don't think they have anything to do with the Bible or Christianity. In other words, you don't have to, you know, be stuck in Genesis or any of the, the typical concerns evolution promoters have. It's just a question of, do you allow for the possibility that a God exists? And if you allow for that possibility, that idea alone introduces certain variables into the equation that we don't usually take into account when we think about science. Just the whole philosophy of science and how we go about doing science. And I think we should have a conversation about those things 
and and kind of avoid getting stuck in in all the other stuff we usually talk about like you know is there a better way to interpret genesis uh you know, is there an, an ancient account of how people in those times thought about the universe? All those different things usually get involved in, which, which is essentially trying to, to temper with the theology to see if we can adapt it to the science. I think we need to have a, uh, what's the word, a prerequisite conversation just about the philosophy of science first. And I guess we can, we can get into that as we go along. Um, but before we get into it, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts as to what what you came to this conversation with or any anything like that. Um. I have a question. I, I think your framing there is, is interesting. Um, and when you when you say this, are you approaching this from a standpoint of you're imagining having a conversation with someone and they're saying, hey, I, I don't know about evolution in the Bible. And you're thinking it's more pastorally productive, maybe, or something like that to say, well, are you open to the possibility of there being a God? Because that, that might be what this conversation is actually about. Um, or is it more like you're thinking about actually in terms of like a rigorous metaphysical argument about what's happening or sort of, and what register are you thinking about sort of the... Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not thinking of it from a pastoral angle at the moment. I'm more in terms mm -hmm. of just saying, okay, let's allow for for some possibility that god exists and that god is somehow connected to the existence of everything else so we could even be talking to a group of atheists here and say look do you even allow for that possibility like let's say there's a 10 percent chance that there actually is a god and that god is somehow connected to this universe to the existence of some aspect of the universe if we allow for that possibility it could affect how we think about everything else you know, regardless of any theology, I could we could be Hindus or Muslims or Jews or anything. It's not really connected to the Bible or to any of the, any of the things we normally bring to the table as Christians. So anyway, that's that's one thing, and I'll, I'll give you a chance in a second, David, to to comment. But uh, the other thing with this is also that one thing that I've noticed after maybe twenty some years of talking about this stuff with people over and over is that a lot of us as Christians bring different metaphysical paradigms to the conversation. So in other words, we're talking about the same topic. We're talking about evolution, creation. We're talking about the same stuff. And a lot of times we're using the same vocabulary because we've, we've all been connected to the Christian tradition and we have certain words and ideas that we keep repeating. But what we mean by those things are very different because we have this mental picture of what reality is like behind the scenes that's different from one person to the other. So we kind of talk past each other. So anyway, I'm throwing that out there as well as Part of the bigger problem that I'm I'm thinking about here. So anyway, sorry, David. Well, what's your what's your thought about this whole conversation? I mean, that's interesting. You know, so uh, I kind of have some of the same senses as you, Mike. But I'm I'm particularly curious. So, like, if if we want to say that allowing for the possibility of a God is going to affect how we approach the questions or even how we might use and interpret science. I'm very curious to see like exactly how we, how you or how we might plan on working that out uh, because <clears throat> so I think that in particular, uh, like the intelligent design group is an example of a group of people that are very much letting the existence of God uh, affect their own scientific method. 
And so like in their framework, God becomes a testable hypothesis, mm -hmm. right? Where yeah. like the, the hand of God within uh, some sort of guided evolutionary framework is something they actually be tested for and seen and proven through natural analysis. Is that the sort of way that you're thinking this or? Well, um, I guess I should kind of throw another thing out there as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm personally very unsatisfied with everything I've seen from creationists, scientific creationists or intelligent design proponents. So I'm, I'm at a point where I, I dismiss the whole effort altogether. And I say, if we're gonna do anything, let's start over and do something better. Uh, that said, it doesn't mean that we might not try to salvage some of the elements that were used within those movements. Um, but my question is ultimately looking at all these different groups, trying to decipher their metaphysics, and then trying to see how they address certain questions that are, are the effect of it. So I think the, the fastest way for, for me to do this is just to kind of uh, run you guys through, through the idea, and then we could discuss it rather than try to just give hints of it. So basically, um, in my mind, I can see sort of a scale of the interaction between God and creation. <clears throat> and um, if you thought about it from the perspective of somebody on, on one extreme of the scale, for example, if we went to some tribe uh, in, in some parts of the world where people are, are, you know, we would call it maybe a primitive level of culture or society, <clears throat> you know, even though maybe those words are not appropriate, but um, excuse me, I'm, I'm starting to lose my voice already. <clears throat> So a lot of these people have a very magical view of the world. So for example, let's say you got sick, you, you picked up a virus, whatever, um, you know, they might say, hey, uh, you have an evil spirit or hey, let's do some magical ritual or whatever and then, and then get rid of that, whatever magical situation is happening that's affecting you and getting you sick. So on one extreme of the spectrum, some people have this view of the world that is very magical where, yeah, there's natural aspects, but the natural aspects are almost impossible to differentiate or separate from the supernatural aspects of reality, right? And then you go to the other extreme where you have modern atheists and naturalists who essentially see everything as purely natural from beginning to end. There's no God, nothing outside of the natural realm. And in between those two extremes, you have like a spectrum and you could go down that spectrum you know, back and forth, wherever different, like you could talk to different groups of people, even within Christianity, and kind of pinpoint where they are on the spectrum, <clears throat> as far as the relationship they see between God and the created world. So for example, somebody that's maybe at, because, you know, I know you guys mentioned biologos before, somebody on the, on the scale that's closer to like the, the more natural perspective of the world, so closer to the, maybe the naturalistic end of things, will say, well, you know, maybe God just <clears throat> got the ball rolling in the beginning and then everything else happened naturally. Now, of course, they'll say, well, even though it's natural, it's also supernatural at the same time. Like just because something happens and we perceive it as natural doesn't mean it's not actually supernatural in a way that we can't perceive. So they'll say it that way. But, but in a sense, God just sort of got this thing to go and everything else to our perception happens naturally. An atheist will deny that and say, no, the whole thing is natural from beginning to end, right? Um, but the, the thing is, the scientific method itself 
seems to line up more with the atheistic perspective. So even the even somebody who says, you know, God only got the ball rolling and everything happened naturally after that, the atheists will come and say, no, let's apply science to that and then come up with a way to explain even that naturally. So the scientific method, the way people seem to apply it is to always find a natural solution for everything, regardless of how little of the process you give to God. Like you could say, God only did a tiny little bit and everything else happened naturally. And somebody will come and say, no, let's apply the scientific method and figure out a natural solution even for that. So it seems like the scientific method is always gonna pull things further and further towards naturalism. And as Christians, we've never come, at least that I'm aware of, we've never quite come up with an explanation of how to say, okay, at this point, the scientific method starts to break down because at this point, God had to intervene and do certain aspects of this. And, and the rest of it is natural, but this part is God's part in it. So I don't know if you guys understand what I've just described, but that's kind of the question. How do we draw that line or how do we interact with that you know, aspect when God's, God actually does his side and the other side is natural, all these things. Uh, does it make sense? Do you guys understand the question or? I do, yeah, yeah. And I think what, an interesting point about the sort of thing you graphed is sort of on the, on the one side where natural and supernatural are sort of collapse into one or that division is denied. Yeah. Um, in a sense, like there's a real kind of similarity between that view and the atheist view in the sense that there's sort of, there's only one thing, right? And it's either this natural supernatural mix on the one side or naturalism on the other. And then you have to move away from that in, in some metaphysical way, because ultimately we're talking about metaphysics here. We're talking about something that's whatever's behind the scenes, whether exactly. that's something or nothing, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Um, but, but there's a question, this is a very interesting one, which is, well, let's say there is a viable distinction between natural and supernatural. How can you tell what is what, <laughs> right? Yeah, what, yeah, what but, but, that? but that's yeah. part of the problem because to our perceptions, we just see the natural. So when we think about science, we got to think about those, those in terms of the natural, because that's the thing we're testing. You know, when we're doing science, we're testing the stuff we can perceive as natural. So... Hmm. At some point, in other words, if, if we're making the claim that the natural would not exist if God didn't exist, then that's a scientific claim because we're saying for whatever reason, the natural cannot exist on its own. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and, yet and we don't have a way to prove that. Yeah. So and it's a good, it's a worthwhile construct. Uh, it's an interesting sort of question. Um, I, I'm inclined to say that given the construct you're articulating, that there's actually not a coherent way just in general for humans to distinguish natural and supernatural, maybe. Um, I would also suggest, and this was sort of what our, our previous discussion was about, yeah. is whether in trying to delineate science, trying to understand what is science and how do we tell the difference between science and pseudoscience or science and metaphysics or whatever, mm -hmm. what actually defines science. Uh, I would suggest, and this is actually my view, that in the effort of defining science, the categories of natural and supernatural are useless. They do nothing to help us define science. Okay. And, uh, and we need to have a different approach to defining science. And then the, the upshot of that, I think, is you end up with a concept of science that is in fact not actually naturalistic. And, and a point that uh, like this sort of idea of naturalism contributes nothing to our understanding of science. Um, and that science is just something other than that. 
And that I think opens up space um, for this discussion of the relationship between science and theology in a different way. Um, and so I, I'm happy to offer my own positive account of what I think is a better definition of science. But I think this is what it comes down to for me from this side that we're approaching it from. Okay. Uh, there's no yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, let, let's get into that. I don't know, David, if you want to say something, because I'd I, I like to kind of get into to see how he, he wants to present science. But did, did you have any thoughts so far? No, no, we can move on. That's fine. Okay. Um, so I want to hear how you envision defining science, but also keep in mind that we're in a world where science as a convention is defined by the powers that be, so to speak. In other words, we can sit here and, and pontificate about how science should be redefined, but the world is moving on and scientists are doing what they're doing and they're gonna do it their way. And it, it would be a massive undertaking to convince them to redefine science so that the rest of humanity can kind of change the way they think about science. So we got to keep all those things in mind as we're talking about this. So go ahead. So how do you, how do you envision Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think what, what, one of my goals is that any definition I would offer would, so we're, what we're doing now is technically philosophy of science, yeah. right? And a lot of scientists actually don't do philosophy of science, right? Yeah. Um, but that, that, so I think it's fair to expect of philosophy of science that insofar as it provides a definition of science, that scientists and people in scientific research fields would look at it and say, yes, you, you have accurately described what we do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I think you're, it's a fair point. Like, oh, if we're just playing a game of, of offering whatever definition we want of science, then that's, that's not very productive. Um, and I think that what, what I can offer here actually works that way. And I, I have friends who are scientists or, you know, from a, you know, a physicist friend uh, or a linguist friend um, and actually people I think in general uh, if we sort of uh, yeah so I think I, I have a fairly robust general uh, concept of science here um, now of course there's always debates right uh, and reasonable debates but I, I think um, this this passes that test so and it's, and it's actually pretty simple it's that you make explicit logical models Right, so they're internally coherent. They're deductively sort of coherent um, in some way, um, or at least they're just consistent, right? So sort of they have adequate public coherence and consistency. And then you have uh, careful observations of some sort, and the nature of careful observation varies by field. Um, but there's some kind of careful, careful, publicly available observation, and that what you're looking for is a faithful reflection in the model of the careful observations. Um, and so that's like the, the core practice of science. Yeah. But if we want to understand science in any way that actually relates to the history of science or the actual practice of science, there's one other concept that we absolutely need, um, which is um, networks of warranted trust, right? Uh, the advance of science could, to anything resembling the degree that we have, can't proceed through the work of just a brilliant individual but it's in, in fact a process of different groups of people who are trusted within their domain, um, trusting each other, at least to some degree, in order to coordinate knowledge and information. Um, and where you have people who are, um, in fact, being faithful to those commitments, meaning they're, they're actually carrying that out, then you're doing science. And sometimes, because sometimes you have someone who is a scientist and is a trained scientist, but they break faith with those core scientific commitments. And then they can be doing pseudoscience. You know, you yeah. can have a scientific expert who breaks faith and is no longer doing science. Yeah. Um, 
So it's those three things, the process of being faithful to them so that our models come to more faithfully represent careful public observation. And it's, and it's in fact, the, the publicness of it is, a, is an essential part um, of what makes it recognizably science. Um, and now I've offered a definition of science that I know, you know researchers and friends of mine who do that find helpful. They're like, yeah, that, that does describe what I'm doing. Um, and that doesn't have any use for the categories of natural or supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what you're describing is an actual methodology. So it's, you know, because a lot of times uh, when I when I talk to Christians, especially on the conservative side, uh, and I ask them, you know, what do you think science is? They'll say things like, uh, "Science is the search for truth." You know, we need to f- to come to discover what reality actually is. Uh, and I personally disagree with that, simply not because I don't think science should search for truth, but I just don't see truth as accessible. Uh, you know, science has a, a limited sphere. And if we allow for the possibility that something exists beyond the natural, uh, science doesn't at this point in time have a mechanism for reaching that and tapping into that and figuring it out. And because of that, it's access to truth is limited. <clears throat> so I look at science more like you're describing where it's, it's a methodology. It's, it's a certain way of doing things that seems to work really well. It's very effective. You know, we're studying the world, we're making hypotheses, making predictions on those hypotheses, we're testing them, we're gathering data, statistically analyzing that data and, and moving on. And we keep doing that, accumulating more and more information. And, you know, we're moving from, you know, I, I gave an illustration one time on this big, uh, big, big blackboard and I drew a line and I said, okay, let's say this is 4,000 BC or some point in time that we can internalize, right? the fastest a person could get from place to place was a horseback riding, right? So, you know, what is it? 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, whatever a horse does, I I don't even know, maybe faster. So I showed, okay, the fastest a person can commute is 30 miles an hour, whatever, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, about 30 miles an hour, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 200 years ago, about 30 miles an hour. Today, it's about you know thirty thousand miles an hour of some some spacecraft going through space, you know, just at crazy speeds, you know. So like within the last two hundred years, we we advanced at this eno- enormous rate compared to thousands of years of human history where we were barely making any progress in in certain areas, you know. So science mm-hmm. has demonstrated its its capacity to understand the world, to progress, to, to give us an, a knowledge of how things work and so on. And, um, you know, if we look at it from the, the point of view of methodology, we're not, we're not putting, expecting more of it than it could actually do, you know? Um, I think one of the issues that I always run into when I talk to intelligent designers is that they keep saying, no, uh, science has to be a quest for truth. And because God created the world, the scientific method is, is there's something wrong with it because it's not leading to the right conclusions. Right. So, I, uh, yeah. yeah. So I would say, and so, and you just described what I, what I described there as a natural methodology. Um, although I would say if, I mean, if the Bible is in view in the discussion at all, that if that's what we d- define as natural, then, you know, even miracle accounts in the Bible, if they actually happened were observed would be, natural things because you know there's there's some kind of and I, i'm not saying actually that this is like a high level of science or sort of 
um, scientific, but there's an insistence, for example, in the observability of the resurrected body of Jesus, right? There's, there's an insistence on the fact that, that there's actually a model in people's heads that's actually, you know, in some ways fairly explicit, not, not in the style of contemporary science, right? But there's an explicit way that this actually makes sense to them, right? That there's a, there's a coherent, reasonably public model and public observation. And so um, I think to, to, to claim that that methodology is a natural methodology already that that that's actually the problem it's not in fact that it is a natural methodology um but if we grant that that's what would define a natural methodology then we've sort of already sold the farm um okay so let me throw this out there um a lot of times when i talk to atheists uh, and I, I make the comment that methodological naturalism which is in my opinion another way of saying science um it inherently um, has somewhat of a bias against the supernatural. And I know that kind of contradicts what you just said, but whenever, whenever I say this to an atheist, they come back to me and they say, no, science has no bias against the supernatural because we can always do experiments. So for example, they'll say, okay, let's take intercessory prayer. That's a supernatural claim, right? Well, we could set up an experiment. We could do, you know, set up a, 1,000 person sample size, set it up as double blind, randomized, you know, split it into have a control group, all this stuff, and run the experiment and see if intercessory prayer actually works. And if it works, we should be able to detect it scientifically. So in other words, intercessory prayer is a supernatural claim. So basically, all these people are sick and we're praying and then they get better supernaturally, which is something that, that doesn't happen to the control group because nobody's praying for them. So even though the event itself is supernatural, our ability to detect that is still natural. So the, the results of the supernatural are natural, right? So um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but the, the event itself, the miracle that happens as a result of intercessory prayer is supernatural, but the healing is natural the person should be able to get out of bed and go home because they're better now or whatever it is we're praying for. So in that sense, science should, should have the ability to interact with the supernatural. Does it make sense? So that's one of the, one of the arguments that the atheist uses against the idea of natural versus supernatural. Right. And I, so, and so my response uh, to some of that with this atheist and to sort of take my perspective on this or the perspective I'm articulating here and argue it, is, is first I would say, well, okay, so we've got our philosophy of science here, which is in fact, I, I think broader than a specific methodology, right? And, and from the perspective of the philosophy of science, we might say that a randomized double, bi double blind control group study, for example, is in fact an, an inappropriate method for certain questions, mm -hmm. right? Be because there might be reasons to suspect that the model can never, uh, like that that, um, that that methodology, well, like, okay, well, let's say there's a God who thinks that's dumb, and just ignores whenever you're trying to do that, right? <laughs> right, like a, a fairly questionable argument. But how would you know, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so is this methodology adequate to the question at hand? And so, and sometimes, and, and this does happen in science, right? So you have mm -hmm. quite a few scientists who really are basically technicians, and they learn how to do regression analysis, and they learn how to do a, a double blind control group study, and then they, and then they, that's their hammer. And they just go through life and they go and hit nails and everything looks like a nail. Um, but I really think from a perspective of the philosophy of science, we have to say, 
this is this is great stuff. I mean, this is very helpful for science. It's not that it's like junk, but it's it's not the be all end all, and and it is far from an adequate definition of what science would be um, to to reduce it to that. Um, and but and so I so that's um, so where does that come back? I would say like again, um, I don't see in the in terms of the philosophy of science the natural supernatural distinction um, serving any function, right? Like, I don't know what that's clarified um, at all, um, except to say, I mean, it might be, and this is sort of my concern with the argument that you're sort of sharing that I, I know sort of people who call science methodological naturalism, uh, I think this speaks to this. They might say, well, basically the argument can be, well, if I can see it, then it's not supernatural. And the only things that I trust or think are real are the things that I see. I would really start by challenging the premise of if I can see it, then it is not supernatural, right? I, where do we get that distinction? What work is that doing? I, I think in some sense, it's a holdover from sort of ancient Platonist metaphysics that are getting transposed into a different register. But as often happens when you transpose things from one system into another, they, they aren't doing the same work. Right. So we're sort of plucking out something from this conversation, and jamming it into that conversation. And you end up with something that the people um, in that original sort of more Platonist conversation would just deem unrecognizable. So maybe we should kind of take a break, I guess, um, and look at some of this uh, methodological frameworks. Because, you know, you mentioned Platonism <clears throat> and, and there's quite a few others that I've seen. Dave, did you have any thoughts on what we talked so far before I kind of changed the direction a little bit? Well, it, so it's interesting. Um, it really kind of brings me to the idea that we need to take some time and really try to nail down what the distinction really is between the natural and the supernatural, right? Yeah. So that, <clears throat> so like, if we're going to think of miracles as supernatural events, what is it that makes us think that, right? Is it, or are you going to define it as something about God being involved in a unique way in a miracle? Or, and is that discounting his involvement in the natural world regularly? Uh, because, I don't know, so, so where I land currently is, I, I'm not sure that there is any real need for the distinction at all, uh, not just in science, but in much of our, like any other category or of our lives in general, mm -hmm. because I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the distinction between those things can actually hold up if we are um, trying to allow for like the existence of God. <clears throat> and I guess it's interesting because sort of going back um, to so like Dan, you're defining uh, your definition of like science. Unless I miss something, wouldn't that include a lot more than just like what people think of when they hear the word science? Is it? It's so it's arguably a more wissenschaftlich definition of science. So a more more okay. German informed. Um, which mm -hmm. is somewhat broader, right? And so they have, mm -hmm. you know, humanities or the Geisteswissenschaften, right? Like, like, and and that you can like, and I think that you know, there's something to be said for, it, and it's it's the being methodical and explicit and public 
about everything. Um, there's also, yeah, yeah. So I think um, it's broader in some ways, but I think it certainly contains um, and, and actually is useful for instructing scientists in a way that saying we look for natural phenomenon that doesn't, I don't think that actually instructs scientists in any useful way. You haven't, right. they haven't actually learned anything about doing science if you tell them that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, I entirely agree with that, that, um, and perhaps that goes back to just the distinction in itself not being helpful, but <clears throat> I think that's something maybe we can parse out more as we talk about it and address it. Yeah, I think we should we should spend some time and think about the metaphysics of, of different yeah. different groups coming at the question because one of the reasons I think it's important is because we're we're participating in a conversation where an important group within this greater community comes from comes at it from a, a naturalistic mechanistic perspective. You know, there's there's a large segment of the scientific community that approaches science from a very naturalistic paradigm. Like, they just look at it at a, as ever they look at the whole thing in terms of just parts interacting with each other, without any kind of supernatural any kind of divinity behind it. And it seems that this group uh, has a lot to do with the scientific community and the direction they go in general, and and the direction science is going in general. But because we as Christians come at it with a different metaphysic, we don't always see where they're going and, and where they're taking things. So uh, one of the ways I try to look at it is to, to say, okay, what if we approach this whole thing from a deistic perspective? So let's imagine a God that created this mechanical universe, just like the atheists perceive it, but, but he created it and then left and everything else is happening on its own. How would that universe compare to the universe of the naturalist? Um, you know, how would the, you know if we pictured the the two paradigms side by side? What would be the differences, and how would the scientific method work in each situation? So that's like a mental exercise I've tried to do at times. But anyway, before we get into that, maybe we should spend some time talking about the metaphysics because mm. not a lot of people think about metaphysics. But for example, you know, you mentioned the Platonic metaphysics, uh, Daniel. Um, you know, and, and you, from what I understand, you, you have somewhat of a Catholic background and uh, the Catholic church oftentimes comes from an Aristotelian metaphysic, which is significantly different when it comes to science, because it has this idea of a, of a substance or an essence that is not the same thing as the material object. So it, it's, I, I'm still learning or trying to understand that perspective, but it's almost like if you look at a at an iceberg and you know you see the top that's sticking out of the water for the aristotelian perspective that's sort of the 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 material stuff that we perceive so you know we our eyes can see light reflected off of objects that are are there whatever we see whatever we sense or detect that's just the tip of the iceberg but underneath the water there's this much bigger mass and that's the essence of the thing so that's the thing that makes whatever object what it actually is. And that essence can actually change in some ways, like water changes to ice sometimes, sometimes it changes to steam. There's, there's all these aspects of the Aristotelian metaphysics. And then there's other groups that come at it from more of a, a pantheistic or panentheistic perspective where God is part of creative reality. So things are natural and supernatural because it's actually part of God in some way. 
and that you you find that sometimes on the more liberal side of the Christian uh, theological world. So I don't know. Have you guys come across other metaphysical perspectives, or what? What do you? What have you seen so far? So yeah, let me say. So let me just sort of note um, it, it, one helpful way to think of this conversation is that we're we could have a conversation to say, well, how does the distinction of natural and supernatural help in defining science, which we talked about some, in defining theology? Is it of use to theology? Um, and then uh, the third, which would be, is it useful in terms of metaphysics, right? And what is it doing for us in terms of metaphysics? Um, and so, and to, to sort of go from where we were to where we are, I would say what you're describing as a, as a naturalist methodology is in fact, not a natural or naturalist methodology but it is in fact a naturalist metaphysics or naturalist metaphysical attitude mm-hmm. about the scientific methodology, right? And so, and by naturalist basically is, the, there's the natural world, there's nothing else, there's no God, there's, there's nothing except the observable natural world. Um, we might also call that a logical positivist position on yeah. science, which is sort of really so, widely- so Let me throw another but, monkey wrench in this whole thing. Yeah. Which of this metaphysics is the one that actually produces the results. Because think about it like this. We've had the Aristotelian metaphysic uh, in the Western world from, from the time of Aquinas all the way to the present. And science progressed only so far. It was better than the Platonic metaphysic because people started taking the natural world seriously more than they did you know, when, when they believed that this is like the matrix or whatever and the reality is out there and this is only a shadow you know, back in the Platonic era. But the Aristotelian metaphysic didn't, um, what's the word? It didn't uh, advance science the way things started advancing when people started taking a more and more naturalistic perspective to the science. So, so I, I have a good friend uh, or a good Facebook friend, I should say, uh, named uh, Derek Peterson, who's just come out with a book on uh, the sort of history of science and some of the conflict theory, uh, which is, is part of what I think you're touching on is the idea that once people started to catch, cast off a more religious metaphysics or a more traditional metaphysics, then sort of science really began to blossom. Um, and I think that whole theory historically, actually just as a, as a matter of the historiography of the period uh, has really been uh, thoroughly and deeply challenged and debunked. Um, and his new book summarizes a lot of that. And so I, I think that the this story of, well, the metaphysics changed and then this new naturalist metaphysics gave rise to science is, uh, it's just not right. Like it's not accurate. Um, it's an interesting question to ask. Um, and sort of my starting position would actually be that metaphysics probably doesn't matter that much for science for the most part, um, except maybe, you know, uh, because really what matters is that you're being faithful to this set of practices and you can, you can have all kinds of views about what, what's happening when you're making an explicit model at a fundamental level and what's happening when you're making careful observations at a fundamental level and what's happening when you're trusting a community that has, uh, is, has warranted trust because they're also doing adequate research. Um, we, can, we can have different metaphysics about what's happening there. And, um, but one where I think this does start to touch on what you're describing is one, and, and this, is, this is like, this doesn't actually sort of predict what's happening in science, but it does, there's a certain like excitement about what it might mean. So the models aspect, right? I, I, I describe it in this very bland way that we can often use in a sort of modern university to teach somebody, it's like, hey, you're looking at your model. This is this is your explicit mathematical model, or it can be like a visual model. There's all kinds of models, right? Um, but uh, for, for, from a Platonist perspective, right? That 
model is the where it works where it pertains is the invisible reality right so so the metaphysics lives in the model in a certain sense right um so that you know if i've i'm studying the movement of a pendulum and i i then find a mathematical model that predicts and describes it i have in that moment that i have the math in hand that predicts it i have pierced the veil from the surface appearance of these careful observations and i have in fact encountered the the fundamental logos mm -hmm. right the, the sort of organizing principle of reality yeah. um and so and so and this is part of where you you start to realize like oh okay so this isn't a what's naturalistic about this methodology certainly in the history of philosophy it wouldn't be seen as a naturalistic methodology um but i think part of what happens especially as science moves into other fields and especially where we realize hey modeling is actually pretty useful but there's a lot of modeling that's like pretty dot like it's dodgy but it's good enough right especially you get into biological sciences and social sciences it's like well you know this model kind of fits you know 85 percent of the time and that's the best we've got and so all of a sudden the models and maybe not all of a sudden but sort of slowly you start to adopt an attitude towards models which is much more um oh models are a dime a dozen and, and there's things advanced like oh cool we can make all kinds of models right and the question is how good is it and, and this model works 85 percent of the time and this model works 87 percent of the time and they're different which one is the fundamental reality right well maybe 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 they are touching it but they're actually something that's in our mind more which i which does sort of is where it can start to turn right where oh the model's just something in our head but i don't think that actually holds up right like well the models can't just be something in our head there, there, there's some point where our comprehension has touched, to put it in the like, maybe more Platonist terms, and, and Aristotle, the, the Aristotle and Plato are closer, closer on this than I think people give credit. And like Aquinas, sort of the you know alter alter Aristotelian is is closer to the Platonist tradition than, than people sometimes realize. Um, but but to to think that at least you know that eighty five percent of the model that worked, that that perhaps in some way we have in fact touched the divine logos, and that God has revealed something of God's self. In this, in this sacred order uh, that we have comprehended, but that we, we, we actually still haven't captured it, right? And so, and theologically, then you're like, oh, cool. They're the scientists once they've stopped reifying their models, thinking that their model is in fact the, the fundamental reality. Um, what they finally learned about is apophatic theology, right? The, the way of negation, the way of saying, oh, okay, we've understood some things, but not, right? And you've actually arrived at um, an analogical view of what's happening, which is, it was very Thomist, right? Um, but also um, very, um, I think very contemporary in the sense of, of no longer just thinking our models capture the essence of reality, but maybe they capture something of it. They. Yeah, I, every time I, I have these conversations, I always think about how our, um, our metaphysics affects the way we think so much, you know, like the, the, the way we, we come at things uh, is so different just because of the, the metaphysical background we bring to the table. Um, so I guess one of the one of the things I was thinking about when I when I talk about how metaphysics affected the progress of science historically is um, you know people's tendency to push the boundaries forward. So for example, you know somebody might 
come to some discovery. They might figure out, you know, an explanation for so, how, how certain things are happening and, you know, the, the path of the planets in space or, you know, biolog biological questions, you know, why, uh, why are all these variations among organisms and so on. And at some point, people with various metaphysical paradigms come to this sort of stop and say, well, the reason this is happening is because God made it to do that. And then they stop asking questions. While people that come at it from a more naturalistic perspective will say, no, let's eliminate the God, the God hypothesis altogether. And let's see how we could explain it without God. And then they start asking more questions and hey, what do you know? Eventually they find out that they could explain certain things naturally. So it, it, to some degree, the naturalistic perspective has, has driven people to push the boundaries. Well, so, others in the past sort of kind of held back because they said, well, we're tapping into divine territory here. We're, we're not going to find anything. Yeah, so I, I think you're touching on something really important that is sort of embedded in my definition of science, which is um, what I would call hostility to inquiry, or at least indifference to inquiry, um, or encouraging inquiry, right? And, and so then there's an interesting question of like, oh, and you're posing an interesting one. How does metaphysics relate to promoting or discouraging inquiry? Um, and certainly, like, it, we've seen it happen all the time. I think Behe's an example of someone where he sort of uses metaphysics, although he, he also says, oh, it could be aliens that sort of design life, right? Um, but, but he sort of, he's um, basically shutting down a line of inquiry into things we might just observe about what's happening at the genetic and molecular level, right? Um, and so what, what I think actually defines his posture as potentially pseudoscientific there is, is in, he's not, he's no longer trying to faithfully produce the most um, careful accordance possible between our models and our observations, right? And so, and so hostility to inquiry or indifference to further inquiry is part of that. But I can use naturalism to be hostile to inquiry too. And this also happens, right? Like we're just monkeys with jello brains why would we ever think we could model anything meaningfully? Uh, we should just give up on this research question because it's obviously beyond our puny uh, capacity uh, and we should just get back to having sex, which is what our brains are for, right? Like, okay, cool. That, well, that, that was naturalism that was hostile to inquiry and that happens too, right? And so, um, and then you can also have a, um, uh, a theology that's a very inviting of inquiry. So for example, I could say, uh, Actually, I view the entire scientific enterprise as part of a process of the God who speaks and communicates, communicating with us in and through God's creation. And so we should expect that our capacity to deeply model and, and publicly observe things is extensive. And furthermore, as a Christian, so not just metaphysically, but biblically, you know, there's an emphasis on the observation of the risen Jesus. There's an emphasis on public knowledge. There's an opposition to secret knowledge. And so I'm, I am saying, you know, now I have a theology that, oh, and I will also add that God is not only the creator, but the sustainer of all things, so that whatever we learn, we are encountering something of the sustainer's word for us in the book of nature, which actually plays a big role in the development of science. So now you have, because of precisely the issue you're touching on, whether this question of hostility or openness to inquiry, because this is like ultra open to inquiry, now you have a very science-friendly metaphysic, which played an important role in the history of science. Um, but I don't think it's, it's, you can't just say, oh, naturalism is science friendly and um, Christian classical theology is, is not. Um, there's, there's sort of 
the the dividing line goes goes through them right you can there's evil naturalism and there's evil religion if you're a pro-science person and there's good religion and there's and there's maybe a good naturalism um too yeah that's that's an interesting conversation i i guess personally it's not really my my field of interest so to speak like i mean yes I would like to have somebody go do like the most thorough possible research of historical scientific development and settle the question once and for all whether um, the naturalistic paradigm or the theistic paradigm or whichever paradigm is the one that most helps science along. Um, but I guess it's uh, ultimately it's not particularly um, I don't know. It, it, it's not the, the. It doesn't really affect things necessarily for me personally. Um, I, you know, I, I do have a kind of a, a, what would you call it, a bias maybe or whatever, because I spent um, probably like 15 years, or let's just say 10 years of my life, or but further back, you know, some some I think somewhere between 2005 2015 or so, 10 years of my life or so interacting almost entirely with just atheists. So I kind of absorbed their way of thinking a lot more than most Christians because most Christians don't talk to atheists that much just because it's a, it's not an uncomf- it's not a comfortable environment. Uh, I've never been an atheist. I've, I've been a Christian since I was about 19, grew up Christian, but then com- had my own personal conversion at 19. And then from that point on, I have always been in ministry and all this. But there was a time when I spent most of my time just having conversations with atheists and I've sort of absorbed their, their way of thinking. So, and, you know, I, it could be that I have a bias in that direction as opposed to most Christians I talk to. So that affects the, the way I approach things. But um, my, my main concern here is um, basically like eventually you know, regardless of the metaphysic we bring to the table, at some point the rubber meets the road. And when we're doing science, we're dealing with mechanistic processes. So, you know, let's say something like abiogenesis because it's less controversial. If we talk about evolution, you know, we're gonna have to probably have a, a big debate on evolution, but abiogenesis, everybody agrees that there, there isn't a natural explanation at this point in time. Even atheists, they don't, they don't have an answer. They don't. They don't have a way to show how it happened naturally. So the question is, could there be a natural explanation? Like, okay, the first living cells, did they happen? Did they come to exist as a result of um, molecular structures that came together by some random process and then the first living self-reproducing cells started to come into being or was there sort of a break into na- into nature did god have to step in and get that thing jump started you know like uh, i don't know if you guys are old enough to you know i, I grew up in, in eastern europe and we had these uh, automobiles and whenever the engine didn't start you had a, you had to crank them up you know and get the engine going because uh you know the the starter was off or whatever uh did god have to like crank up the process and get those first cells going just to be able to get the molecules together and connect it so that they could start reproducing themselves and, and, and the rest of the process take over? Or was even that purely natural? I mean, 
scientists might not have an answer today, but if we came back in a hundred years, they'll figure out how it happens. And it just happened completely by the random interaction of molecules. And, you know, maybe there were certain environmental conditions and electrical currents coming in or whatever it is, you know, some purely mechanistic process that, that doesn't need any kind of intervention, you know? Yeah, so this is actually where I think that the, the sort of common division that we have between the natural and supernatural actually becomes unhelpful because you can look at any particular event that's occurred and think, oh, if there is no, either we don't have an explanation now or there is no actually attainable physical explanation, then that must be a supernatural event. Um, Maybe we need to change the terminology. Maybe let's stop using natural and supernatural, but we still need to make a distinction between two different kinds of processes. So anyway, finish your thoughts. Sorry about interrupting, but yeah. Right, right, yeah. So no, so I definitely agree with you. Um, and I think that a very good example of this, uh, I don't know about you guys, uh, if you happen to be dualists, um, but so even if you're not, you know, just imagine if there's a body and a soul in every human person, there, there becomes what's called the interaction problem yeah. of how they interact and influence one another. Um, and I think that, yeah, so let's say that we have two different things. We're going to have God and we're going to have the world, right? And they're going to interact. One will influence the other. Maybe they'll influence each other, depending on your presuppositions. Um, but whenever, for example, so like whenever the, the soul influences the body or drives it in some way whenever that interaction occurs there is an effect occurring in the body that can be seen can be explained and that spurs on further effects right and uh and so like even if we want to think about um for example, hormones driving human mood, how they affect the brain and affect how we think about things, how we feel, the, the feelings that we have. Science in and of itself, just with looking at what's happening in the body, you can understand what's happening, but there is no way to determine what's actually the cause and what's the effect, yeah. right? Whether the, the chemical interaction is causing the mood, whether the mood is influencing the chemical reaction, whether there's some sort of interplay and there is no like beginning or one clear relation of cause and effect there, if there's some third variable in play, there is no way for like the physical examination of science to answer those questions. And um, so the natural stance of many scientists today is just to assume we don't have any evidence of there being some other variable. So we're just going to take this as our explanation. And I think that something very similar is what happens with, you know, the interaction between God and the world. Yeah, that's a great point. But let me ask you this. Do you think this is always going to be the case or maybe a hundred years from now, scientists will be able to, to solve that dilemma? So particularly for like, um, chemicals in the brain. Um, 
really no i think it becomes much more of a metaphysical question not because just because um like not because there's any lack on science's part but because you just have things happening simultaneously and if things are happening simultaneously, you can't determine which one is uh, driving the other um, because science requires the use of looking at how things change over time. Okay, so and let me ask you this. What if scientists are able to make a computer program that has consciousness? Do you think that's not possible or do you think if they did it, it wouldn't be the same as what's happening with humans? Uh, so I think that it might be possible. I'm not, I'm not convinced one way or the other on it. Um, <clears throat> I think that if there is some sort of computer that gains sentience, it's going to work differently, but you're going to have the same exact problem where you're going to, you're not going to really know um, once this sort of boundary is crossed and events begin to happen simultaneously interacting with one another, you can assume that the parts of the machine uh, have begun to then drive the higher processes, but you can't actually look at them both and see that occurring, um, especially if we're, uh, if we're working with the possibility that consciousness is this emergent property yeah. that sort of comes about. So basically the machine would, would end up having a soul the minute it crosses the line into awareness, self-awareness. That's, that's pretty much what I would, yeah, I'm okay saying that. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that God would have to create a soul for it or is it just a natural emergent property of... Right, right. So this is, again, I don't think that um, that paradigm of looking at things is super helpful. Uh, because <clears throat> God is always at work within our world, sustaining it, working through it, causing his plans, you know, working with us and through us and with. Oh, you, you pressed your mute button. It looks like. Whoops. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. My wife was calling me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so with the way they got it, it's not as if God only acts at certain points or in certain times or that he chooses. Uh, and there might be particular ways where he acts uniquely, maybe. Um, but all of natural process and action, I think, is sustained by, motivated by, and God and used by God so that he is in the midst of all of it, right? So like, does a soul arise? Yes. Is it something that doesn't have a physical explanation? I would say probably not, although that's possible. Um, like I, I, mean, I personally- I, Physical, uh, when we talk about physical, we're still talking about mm -hmm. like, for example, the computer, you know, I. I have a physical computer here that I'm talking on, but this, you know, I'm using Windows and I'm using Zoom within Windows, and these are not physical properties. They're, they're software. You know, they're all these things are, are happening that transcend, in a sense, the the physical of the computer. But 
it's still physical in some respect. It's not like supernatural. It's not some other word you want to use to refer to it. So is, is this what you're talking about or are you thinking of the soul in some other sense? Right. So, um, I mean, that might be an acceptable metaphor. Uh, I, I think I don't, I'm not even really convinced that it matters. Like however, however you want to think of the soul, um, any sort of thing that is physically manifested in some way or has some sort of physical effects will, you can examine, observe, test for, and understand those physical effects with science and see how they rise, give rise to other things. Um, and if they were caused by some other physical events, you can determine that. <clears throat> so uh, this is like going back to like the origins of life. If there were this particular arrangement of physical phenomena with temperature, atmosphere, I don't know, maybe it is some weird lightning strike and just the collection of the exact right amount of um, or material so that you get the very basic organic life suddenly through this collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm totally fine with there being physical, real explanation for that occurring. Um, I guess I wouldn't just want to call that natural in and of itself, yeah. or, or like as in the sort of supernatural natural divide, because anything that is natural or that we think of as having to do with nature, if we're allowing for a God standing behind and with it is going to be all of those processes are going to be guided affected and interacting with him even if they're in and i think that because there are these physical things that are going to interact in physical ways you're going to have physical explanations for them <clears throat> but none of that excludes or says anything about something that is immaterial yeah yeah I, yeah, I, I, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I have to go pretty soon, but if I could just uh, make a couple of quick notes before I run, and then I'd love to pick up the conversation later if hey, you'd like. Is that yeah, okay? Why don't we do that? Why don't we pause this after you finish, and then we'll, we'll schedule another time, because it's too long for people to watch anyway if it goes much more than an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to say I, I agree substantially um, with that, and, and that actually this, this whole thing about so now we're talking about the theology of it, right? How, what is our understanding of God? Is God just the creator or is God creator sustainer? And what does that mean? Um, and that actually a lot of the, like in, in the way we use it, at least in a modern context, supernatural and natural, it's working a theological mischief long before it gets to be working scientific or, <laughs> or metaphysical mystic, uh, mischief more generally, I think. So my objections to it, and, and this goes back deep in the history of Christian theology and tradition. So it's not that we're just like, oh, we ran into evolution and now we have to like backpedal and make up uh, some new stuff. It's like, actually, this is very much a recovery of classic Christianity. Um, and uh, then the last thing I'll leave you with to think about that is uh, one word you used was random in describing like, was life a random process? Well, there's nothing actually about randomness that implies a non-conscious or non-designed process. And in fact, one of the examples of science we were just using is a randomized control group study 
And if you don't have the right kind of randomness, it gets a lot harder to understand something. So randomness, far from being the opposite of design in the sort of some grand ultimate sense, to me is, is actually like, oh, cool, very compatible. Randomness is awesome. It has an intricate, fascinating, important mathematical structure that is extremely useful. <laughs> like, the, yeah, I, yeah. I think randomness is, is perhaps God communicating something with us too. So I'd love to pick this up later. And I'm very sorry that I have to run my, uh, my uh, niece uh, who we're raising is having birthday. Hey, no problem. Hey, why don't we end this here? And let's, uh, if we can, let's try to, to meet again and, and continue the conversation. I'd be more than happy to. Thanks a lot, right. guys. Bless you guys. Take care.